This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book and it is number nine of the series entitled Truly Furnished. We commence this study by reading together a portion of scripture, Romans the fifth chapter, verses one to eleven. Romans the fifth chapter, verses one to eleven. And while we are finding the passage, I would remind you that at this eleventh verse, the outside section of Romans ends, and a change takes place and introduces a new name. Earlier it's Abraham that's spoken about. Now it's Adam. It's gone back further. Romans 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Margin reads, the reconciliation. Now last time we were together, we took the traditional method of dividing a text up from scripture into firstly, secondly and thirdly. And we found the Apostle Paul has given us an extraordinary example of what can be done with a text. He took a text out of an obscure part of the Old Testament which reads, The just shall live by his faith. And he wrote an entire epistle, the epistle to the Romans, about the first mess part of it, the just, what righteousness means. And the second part he wrote about by faith. And Galatians is the bit that stresses that. And Hebrews comes along at the end and says, shall live. And there's three epistles. Now, we're not all Pauls, are we? We're not going to do that with every text. But it does show you that it's a, it's a way in which the truth can be subdivided and presented in two or three aspects. And uh, it will nearly always turn out that in a congregation of people, the way you put one thing will miss them, and the way you put it another way will miss somebody else. But you hope by having putting it in several ways that the different attitudes of heart and mind will get the message. Well now, of course, there are other ways. And at long last, those of us who have to take meetings and speak will ultimately resolve, so far as we are concerned, as before God, what method we adopt. Uh, we mustn't be slavish followers of any set rule. The one thing to guide us is that we must keep in mind the necessity to make our message plain, that there should be no misunderstanding of the meaning, and that we should 
above all things be conscious of our utter dependence upon the Spirit of God to write the message that we may give upon the heart. We can't go deeper. We can't go as deep as that. But it is up to us that we do present the truth in such a way uh, that it can not only make an immediate contact, but that it shall give some way of holding it in the mind. Now, one of the values of a hymn, and sometimes its danger is, that you can remember a thing that's in rhyme, uh, whereas in the ordinary way it would pass from your memory. And there are some very evil doctrines that have been perpetuated in the church because people all sing them. Well, now, we're not going to sing or going to try to write poetry this afternoon, uh, but the message that I want to give is to suggest uh, for a Bible study that may occupy more than one meeting to take the first part of the Epistle to the Romans, chapters 1 to 5, ending at verse 11, and then consider the way in which it develops the essential meaning and teaching of the place that righteousness occupies in the scheme of God's great redeeming grace, the presentation of the gospel as preached by Paul. And uh, you will find that as we go through that the lines upon which we're going to consider it, it's an artificial uh, way of putting it, but it keeps pace with the actual word of God, that the first section we should look at will be just put down under two words, righteousness revealed. And then the story changes, and it wants to make sure that you realise that righteousness is required. Then it comes back on the story and says, well now then, as you all need it, this is the way God's provided it. Righteousness through redemption. And then you say to me, well how has it become mine? Righteousness by reckoning. And ultimately in the fifth chapter, righteousness and reconciliation. Well now you see, before ever we go any, any way further, each one of these headings is introduced by a double capital letter R. Shall we now look at Romans 1 and see how far this fits in with the story? Picking up the reading of Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now he says that he is not ashamed of this gospel, because it is the power of God. And it's the power of God under salvation. And it's the power of God under salvation to everyone that believe it. But he hasn't said why. He hasn't said up till now why. What is it inside that gospel that constitutes its power to save? For, do notice the way in which the apostle uses his little logical uh, conjunctions. He's a very logical writer. And here's his reason. For, this is the reason why the gospel does its work. For, therein is revealed, or therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Now you say, how does that prove that it's the power? Well, so far as we are concerned, we shall read presently in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. And consequently, if ever we're going to be saved and forgiven and accepted, something's got to be done about it. And inasmuch as we cannot provide a righteousness, there's nothing for it. If God doesn't provide it, we're finished. But now the gospel comes to you and to me that are destitute of this and says, but here's a message that reveals the righteousness of God. Then it says, 
from faith to faith. Well, that doesn't quite convey... What does it mean, reveal from faith to faith? Whose faith? From what faith to other faith? Well, the expression, a righteousness out of faith, ek, you see, is used continually by the Apostle Paul. A righteousness which originates in faith, not in works. And then, it's revealed to faith and not by merit. So it's a very compressed little statement. And in light of what he says elsewhere, you can extend it in explaining and say, for therein is a righteousness of God which originates only in faith and is presented only to faith according as it is written in the scriptures, the just shall live by faith. Now that's the basis of Paul's gospel. It reveals something that God has wrought and God is offering to those of us or are destitute of it. And now, you see, that is practically the way in which the first chapter down to verse 18 can be summed up. That the power of the gospel presented to faith originates and arises out of the fact that God has seen to it that righteousness is, is revealed. Because, you see, if God hadn't been careful of the righteous side there would always have been the consciousness and the feeling that sin had been passed over. Sin had been somewhat um, compromised God. But then we, we have the record in the scripture that he's of two purer eyes to recognise or uh, look upon iniquity. There's this character of God and the throne of God and the upholding of the universe that's at stake. So inasmuch as it was not possible that we could provide the righteousness, the Son of God has come. And his first great work is to make sure that the righteousness of God is not, uh, not in any measure um, made to bow to any necessity. But he undertook to provide a righteousness in which all may stand. Well now of course we we could enlarge on that and make that the basis of one of these Bible studies. But we'll move on to the next one so that we can cover the ground first of all anyhow. The next one I suggest starts with verse 19 and it occupies a large section. It goes through to chapter 319 and it divides into two parts. It divides into the Gentile world and it, then it goes to the Jewish world. Now here's a little bit of a uh, testimony to you and me, how to approach a subject. The Apostle was going to walk on a very sort of controversial ground. He was going to accuse the Jew of being just as much in need of a saviour as the Gentile. And of course the Jew would turn around and say, oh, but we are a chosen people. So what does he do? He points the finger at the Gentile world and he knows that his Jewish reader would agree with him that the Gentile world is in a terrible state. Yes. Well, then he comes back and he says, now I'm going to quote from your scriptures about you. And he sums it all up in chapter 3. He says, not merely the Jew and not merely the Gentile, but the whole world. So let's approach that. Is righteousness required? Well, we go from verse 19 and we see this. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them 
for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now I couldn't have written those things, because it would have seemed temerity on my part to condemn an idolater and say he has no excuse. But then God has said so. He says, look, I know that the Gentile world has been left to itself. But if you read the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 14, when Paul first of all spoke to some idolaters who were going to put wreaths and offer sacrifices to him and to Barnabas and called the one Jupiter and the other Mercury, oh, he said, God has never left himself without witness. The very, side, the very days of the week and the seasons that follow and all the things which we call nature are in evidence. They're in evidence. And so God says that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Now that doesn't save a person to know that God is creator. But if he denies that God is a creator, well, he can't even get a start. So he says, you see, the Gentile world, and he goes on, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man, to birds, four-footed beasts, creeping things, wherefore God gave them up. And it says three times over, he gave them up. In verse 25, who changed the truth of God into or for a lie. So there was some responsibility about this. They not merely did not recognize the eternal deity and power of God in creation, but they went further and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Well then, from that, in chapter 2, he uses the word without excuse again. But this time he's turning to his own brethren. He said, you are nodding your head and agreeing that the Gentiles are without excuse. But he said, look, aren't you saying to yourself, oh, we are the people who had the law given to us. We are the people who had the light of God's truth. But he says, if that's the case, you're even in a worse condition because these never had the law like you have. So, let's look at chapter 2. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, Whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. For we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth, not according to favour, according to truth against them which commit such things. And now we can almost want the Americanism here. Not and thinkest thou. This is nothing to do with thinking. Are you guessing? Are you reckoning that you're going to get away with it like this, old man? Are you reckoning, old man, that judges them which do such things and doest the same that thou should escape the judgment of God? And so, he says that if it be um, either way, verse 9, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, 
and also the Gentile. You see, in chapter 1, verse 16, when it was regard to the preaching of the gospel, it was the Jew first. And then the Greek. But he said, don't forget if you're first in receiving the gospel, you'll also be first in receiving the judgment. It, it works both ways. For, but glory and honour and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. And now comes the summing up as to why God acts like this. For there is no respect of persons with God. He may have chose Abraham, he may have set aside the nation through Isaac, he may have kept that people uh, to himself, but he says no respect of persons. There's one thing that can never be charged against God. And so he says, uh, that in, in so many words, that just as the people of Israel had the written law given at Mount Sinai, so the Gentile word had the world had the law of conscience written on their hearts. Would you notice? Verse 14. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, it's doubtful whether that is what the Apostle meant. Suppose we try again. For when the Gentiles which have not the Lord by nature do the things contained in the law, they haven't got the law, but they nevertheless do some things, these, having not the law, are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So we have now the ancient world without a written scripture, and the Jewish people with it, and they're both coming under the same judgment. In fact, we're told that it's going to be worse even for Israel because they had greater light. But there's something else here that we ought to notice. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. That's a strange thing to judge by a gospel, isn't it? Now, what does he mean? Ah, he says, now I'm just giving you a little light on the day of judgment. And it's a very blessed thing, friends, that judgment at last is not on what you've done, but why you did it. It's not so much the outward act that's going to count. It's the reason why. Now, that's got a terrible thought and it's got a very helpful thought. For God knows why we do things, even though we may make a mess of it. Isn't that comforting? I always remember one little story I read of a girl who was very much desirous by the mercy of God of devoting herself to missionary work. But tragedy happened in her home. The mother died. She had a little younger set of brothers and sisters and she spent most of her life washing, mending and cooking. And then somebody said, well, when you stand before the Lord, show him your hands. And he knows what was in your heart. And you'll get all the credit for the missionary work you never did. Not because you never did it, but because you would have done it if you could. If we would read in the paper tomorrow that a judge at the Old Bailey had before him a man that could not bring the witness enough to condemn the man, then he said, I can't be sure that you did it, but I have a feeling you might have done it, so I'll condemn you on that. Well, that'd be an outrage, wouldn't it? But now our Saviour is not going to make that mistake, because he knows what is in man. And he said it'll be more tolerable 
more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. For if they had had these miracles, they would have repented. Now you see, they never had them. So they never repented. But the Lord said, I can judge you by what you would have done. You needn't think you're going to be condemned by an accident of time. Oh, that takes it completely out of our hands, doesn't it? We don't know where we are. Isn't it good? Judgment is not in our hands. We cannot even come to an assessment. It's only God who knows how to accommodate what we would have done if we could with what mess we've made of it sometimes afterwards. So that it cuts both ways. Now he brings this to focus back again on the Jew. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and the truth of the law. Oh my, what a definition. What a people these must be. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? You see? And so, when he gets to chapter 3, after he's gone right through this, which you must read to make the thing complete, the Jew turns around and says, What advantage then hath the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision if I'm going to be condemned even more than the heathen? Oh, said the apostle, much every way. I'm not belittling that chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And then, to still keep with our thought, righteousness is required, isn't it? It's required by the Jew and it's required by the Gentile. Now he says in verse 10, oh, verse 9, what then, are we better than they? You see, dispensationally, much better. Doctrinally, no better. Dispensationally, all much every way. Are we better than they? Not a bit. No, in no wise. For we have both proved before Jews and Gentiles that are all under sin, as it is written. Now he takes them to their own book. And this book wasn't written about the Gentile world, it was written about Israel. The passage he quotes. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. And then he says in verse 19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them, what under the law, that's you, that every mouth may be stopped, that's the whole world, and all the world become guilty before God. So there's our second member. First of all, righteousness is revealed, and it originates in faith, is presented to faith. That's the power of the gospel. Now, righteousness is required. And unless a person listening to you is conscious that he needs it, you're wasting your time to tell him that God's provided it. But if once his conscience is quickened, and he thinks, oh yes, I couldn't stand before a righteous God as I stand right now, he says, all right, you can take away the filthy garments, and you can stand in a robe of righteousness. But how's that provided? Oh, well, now we get the next one. Righteousness is received via redemption. So we'll look at verse 20 onwards. Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, oh, it's coming back to his theme again, but now, the righteousness of God. He said, I've told you it was revealed, I've told you it's required, now we'll come back to it. 
But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. He changes the word revealed to manifested. But it's only the same thing said in a different way. Be ye witnessed by the law and the prophets. It wasn't quite so clear in the Old Testament as you read it. But when once you know the New Testament, you go back to the Old. Oh, yes, you say, look how it witnessed to this that was yet to come. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. Notice the difference. It's addressed to all. But it's upon all those that believe, because some won't have it. But it's no restriction now, no respect of persons. The Jew and the Gentile alike need it, and to them it is preached. For there is no difference. For all, now our version says, have sinned. Well, that's right. But it's even more precise. For all sinned in the past, and are coming short in the present of the glory of God. Now you say, what's it mean to come short of the glory of God? Two things. In the Old Testament, the basic word for sin means to come short. You'll find in the book of Judges a very wonderful illustration that certain left-handed men of the tribe of Benjamin could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. And that word miss is just the word for sin. You'd eat and pile on the agony and call yourself all sorts of horrible things. If you've just come short, even the world says you might as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb. If you've come short, you've come short and you've got to stand there, whether you're a publican or whether you're a Pharisee, whether you can boast that you do this and that and the other and not like this man, it doesn't matter. Come short. Because, you see, there can be no possible argument about righteousness. One of the symbols of righteousness in the Old Testament is a pair of scales. And you either give 16 ounces to the pound or you don't. That's the end of it. And those who speak about the bloodthirsty code of Jehovah, when he said an eye for an eye, forget that an eye for an eye is 16 ounces to the pound. So if you're one of those people who criticise God, and the next time you go into a shop and you think they're giving you 14 ounces to the pound, or say, oh, I mustn't be bloodthirsty, I'll have to take 14 ounces instead of 16. That's silly, isn't it? Righteousness can make no concessions. Even old Shylock was told, that in the course of justice, none of us would see salvation. It's either all, or you're a sinner. You may be a big sinner or a little sinner, but that makes very little difference. You'll come short. And the word glory needs to be carefully examined. I'll pass this on to you for your own uh, further research. The word glory comes right back through to a verb that means to seem. S-W-E-M. You say, well, it's a funny idea. Until you realise that it means that it, you will be what you seem to be. Now God will be. But we won't be many times because when we're stripped we find that we've been hypocritical. So the glory of God is the standard to which we must all conform. And we've, uh, we're put to the acid test and we're wanting. Now is it? For all sinned in the past are coming short of the glory of God in the present, being justified freely, straight off, without any break. At the very moment that you're a sinner and you're coming short, you can be justified freely. The word freely is translated in John's Gospel, they hated me without a cause. Don't try to worry yourself as to why God should love you. 
Just rejoice in the fact that he has and let the time be when he chooses to try to make the reason why plain. It's without a cause, but freely, by his grace, through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. So here we are, justification, once more, righteousness, the power of God unto salvation, is revealed to faith, and it is resting upon the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Then he takes it further, whom God has set forth, this is a public setting forth, for a propitiation, and that's the word translated mercy seat in the epistle to the Hebrews, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins of the past through the forbearance of God, to declare us at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So he says, righteousness revealed, righteousness is manifested, righteousness has been declared. He puts it three ways. And it's a good idea for you and for me to put things in three ways or more, so that if a person doesn't know what revealed is, he might know what manifest means. And if he doesn't know what those two mean, he might know what declared means. At least try. God making it plain that through the redemption which is in Christ, addressed to faith and not by works, this becomes ours. So he says in verse 27, where is boasting? It is excluded. And this word means locked out. It's a word that involves the word key. 3.27 Where is boasting? It's locked out. But what law of works? Nay, but with the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that the man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Well now we move to the next subject because time is moving quickly. Righteousness is revealed. Righteousness is required. Righteousness is ours because of redemption. But how is it ours? How do we get it? How do we know we've got it? In what way does it become ours? Because this is a work that's been done for us here nearly 2,000 years ago. How can it become mine now? What is the link? Chapter 4 seems to supply it. Will you notice verse 3? For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now that word counted is the word reckoned in the next verse. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. And it's back again, it counted in verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And it's the word imputed in the next verse. Even as David also describeth the right blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputed righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the law will not impute sin. So here we have the word, and once more, verse 9, Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? And at the end of verse 11, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. So here we have a consistent hammering away. You see, we've got a little variation. When we're reading the authorised version, one verse says reckon, one says count, one says impute, and one says count, and one says reckon. It doesn't seem too much of a repetition. But on the other hand, are we so concerned about the poetic element in the Bible or its intrinsic truth? If we want its intrinsic truth, 
Let's hammer away at this one word without changing its translation. And for our purpose, we take the word reckoned. Every one of these verses we've read, it's reckoned. Reckoned unto Abraham, reckoned, reckoned, reckoned. That's our God. Makes it ours. But you say, what does it mean? Well, let's look at the other side of the story. In Isaiah 53, it says our Saviour there, who was the subject of prophecy, he says, he was reckoned. He was reckoned with the transgressors. He who did no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now you say this, if God could reckon his spotless son as a sinner and then treat him like that, I could well understand then, if it was for my sake, he could treat me, who am by no means a spotless with regard to sin. He could treat me in the other way. He was reckoned among the transgressors that I may be reckoned righteous, not by works, but by faith. So now we've got four of these steps. Righteousness is revealed as the power. Righteousness is most evidently required for all the world has been brought in guilty. Righteousness is only mediated to us through redemption and righteousness becomes ours by being reckoned to us on the simple basis that we believe what God says. We can bring nothing in our hands, we can offer it nothing, we can pay nothing, we can stand like Abraham who believed in the Lord and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. Then at the end of this chapter, it comes back to it. Verse 22, And therefore it was imputed or reckoned to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed or reckoned to him. But for us also to whom it shall be imputed or reckoned if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. That's what Abraham believed in prospect. Our version says who was delivered for our offences. Watch the little word for. Who was delivered because of our offences and was raised again because of, not to obtain, but because of our justification, it was all over. Chapter 10, verse 9, much more than being now justified by his blood. We were justified at the cross, not waiting for the resurrection and the ascension. That's the emphasis here. Who was delivered because of our offences, and was raised again because the justification was all over. The the resurrection of Christ is God's acceptance of the finished work and we ought to rest where God rests. Now the last of these uh, alliterate headings is chapter 5. What's this all going to lead to? Because now he's going to sum up. Therefore being justified and it's possible the words by faith belong to the next sentence or next part. Or it may be an overlap, because you see, there's no possibility now of saying to the Apostle Paul, how are we justified? He says, oh, well, I've proved it, it's by faith. But he says also by faith, we have peace with God. The one that gives us the justification gives us the other. The work of righteousness shall be peace. That's the reason why he emphasises these two things. And the word peace needs to be considered, especially in the Old Testament word, shalom which means to make perfect, to make amends, to pay the price, to satisfy, to complete. It's not merely a patch-up quietness. 
It's a definite transaction that's accepted and finished and never come again, blotted out. Therefore, being justified by faith, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see the difference? We came short of the glory of God. Oh, we've got a different prospect now. Whatever the glory of God means, we rejoice now in hope of it. And then for a moment we leave what's next said in verse 3 and pick up again where he says, um, verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled. You see, the word access is not the word reconciliation, but it assumes it. In Ephesians 2, we have access in one spirit. But before it says that, it says we are reconciled in one body. Reconciliation and access are two ways of saying the same thing. If you're not reconciled, you have no access. If you are reconciled, you do. So we have reconciliation implied in verse 2. We have reconciliation expressed in verse 10. For if when we were enemies, just look back and see the way in which he describes those who need this salvation. Verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, that's one way of telling you, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. That's another way to tell you. Verse 8. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, if when we were enemies. So it moves from just being without strength to being positive enemies. And in between are the ungodly, that's negative, and the sinner, that's positive. There are some people who are ungodly, not because they're more wicked than anybody else, but God is not in their thoughts. I'll go back to my own home life as a boy, where there was no place for God or the Bible, but we were a fairly happy little family. I don't think we were desperately wicked, we weren't desperately good, we just didn't know, didn't do anything. Un, un, negative, ungodly. So God has a word for the lot. Those who were weak, without strength. Those who were without God, ungodly. Those who are positively sinners, and those who are actively enemies. That covers the general description of folks. One of those four. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see again, the death of his Son justified by his blood, that's first. And then, based upon that, all the new life of Christ, the resurrection life, the ascension life, is also ours. And then it says in verse 11, and not only so, but we also joy or boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And that makes a problem in some people's minds. Because they know full well, no person has ever received the atonement. It was the offering made to God. God alone receives the atonement. We receive the results of the atonement. But the margin tells you that this is the same word that we've already had in verse 10. One is a verb and one is a noun, but it doesn't make any difference. We were reconciled to God. Now, we couldn't quite say in a modern English, we were at one to God, but they could when the authorised version was written. If you look at a, a very exhaustive dictionary, you'll find that there is a word in it to at one anybody. But I've never heard anybody try to do that. That's, oh, it's an awkward sounding word. 
at one anybody. Let's get the word reconciled. Oh yes, that's better still. But when the authorised version was written, this was a word that was in use to at one anybody. I did remember four different references in Shakespeare, but I can't remember them now. But one of them comes to my mind. One character says, I go to make atonement between his brother and the Duke of Gloucester. Well, he wasn't going to offer a sacrifice. He was going to bring them together again because they had parted at one. And the writer in the days of Shakespeare on the scriptures says, what atonement is there between darkness and light? Well, there's no idea. So what, what have they got in common? They can't be reconciled. So here we have reconciliation. So to go over the ground that we've just covered, righteousness revealed is the power of God in the gospel. It's a, it originates in faith, it's addressed to faith, and merit is entirely out of it. Then, the apostle, instead of going straight on to redemption, stops and says, now, I want to make sure that you are conscious of their need. Because if you're preaching the gospel to folks, or teaching them, and they haven't got any sense of need, well, it's like setting a table with plenty to eat to a person who's already fed up and doesn't want any more. And after he's done that, we sum that up as righteousness required. He then points to the finished work of Christ, the two words, redemption and atonement. Redemption or propitiation. The external Passover lamb, the internal mercy seat, the two sides that bring us right into God's presence. Accepted. And then we are told that Abraham and David have both emphasised, and Isaiah 53 takes it up, that this is ours because he was reckoned with the transgressors, that we may be reckoned with the righteous. He was no transgressor. We are not righteous in ourselves. Reckoning makes all the difference. And then, reconciliation is the glorious consequence. The last word of Romans 5.11, in which the first section of Romans ends, is the word atonement or reconciliation. Well now, if you're going to use a blackboard in teaching your class, if you like to do what we've done here in this chapel, you can write on the board two huge capital R, with space in between, and then as you go through, you can put righteousness revealed, and righteousness required, and so on, and so we print upon the minds of those who are listening to you this way in which the thing can remain in the mind. Well, we'll take up other aspects, which will be a part of the tools of the workman, and consider various other ways in which the truth may be presented. And we pray that those of you who are listening may be all the better equipped for this little talk we have together, not depending upon anyone like myself. The only thing I can do is to lead you back to the book and show you how these things are and how they can be lifted out, how they can be uh, sort of uh, sorted out and presented, and we pray with you that some may rejoice in days to come in having these tips because anyone who approaches the Epistle of the Romans and thinks it's an easy book is going to get a job. It needs to be studied and studied and studied, and then we are conscious of the depths and the heights that are beyond us. But some of these things, nevertheless, can be brought to the surface. And if I've been able to do that, well, I think we ought to be thankful. I am at least. I commend it to you, and pray that it may prove a word in season, and be passed on to others who, in their own way, 
shall rejoice together with us in this great reconciliation.